0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at AskChrisShelton at gmail.com. Okay, so uh, I just put up a video this week, part two of my uh, breakdown on the uh, grade chart, or the Bridge to Total Freedom, which is Scientology's step-by-step guide to personal spiritual immortality. And I just wanted to encourage anybody who hasn't seen those two-part videos to please go ahead and watch those. I think I... Um, you know, really put a lot of work into putting together how the Scientology Bridge works. And um, I tried to do it in English speaking (laughs) as much with using English as I could. So anyway, I hope you guys uh, will check that out. And I also have a great podcast up this week with Rachel Bernstein, one of my favorite podcast guests. About second generation Scientologists and cult members, and how she, as a cult recovery therapist and family therapist, deals with second generation uh, cult members because it is a different thing than dealing with people who got in on their own bat as first gen uh, members. And as we've been doing for the last many weeks, I wanted to validate those people who signed up on Patreon this week or bumped themselves up. It was very uh, their, their support is. Very, very much appreciated. This week we got Chris Swanson, Timothy Bassett, uh, Peter Lind, and Heather Wade, and Robert Levine bumped up his amount. So thank you very much guys for that. Cannot tell you enough how, uh, how much that helps keep this channel going. So awesome. Now let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Zoo. In your recent Bridge to Nowhere video, you mentioned that Scientologists believe they're saving lives by clearing their body thetans in OT3. Do they believe they're only saving humankind from the harm these clusters do, or do they also believe they're helping to free the thetans caught up mindlessly in these clusters? It reminded me of the Mormon temple rites that Mormons are encouraged to do, first for themselves, then for their deceased relatives in order to free them from the spirit prison their spirits ended up in because they died without receiving the gospel. The Mormon version, at least and can move into spirit paradise, which is a much more pleasant waiting room for spirits awaiting the final judgment. This motivates Mormons to keep going back to the temple again and again and paying the tithing and attending the meetings and following the rules they're required to follow to be allowed entrance into the temple. I'm curious if OT3s find themselves similarly motivated. Do they feel like the time and money they're spending on OT3 is doing good, not just for themselves? for these Thetans by freeing them through auditing? Do they feel like, even if they haven't done much visible good for society at large, they've at least freed a Thetan or two to go off into its eternity a freed being? Well, yeah, that's that's exactly the point. And I guess I didn't make it clear enough in my video. So, I'm glad you asked this question because this is exactly why Scientologists are so fervent in believing that they are saving the world. When they get to the level of OT3 and above, they feel that these body thetans or you know, which are spiritual beings that are, you know, uh, degraded in a very, you know, unconscious, almost dead state and are clustered and those are the things that make up, you know, the body. Um uh they feel that these are they're 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 spiritual beings. They're thetans. Just like, you know, your you are and I am and you know, everybody else you talk to as is a thetan, uh who has a body, who's running a body, but the but the body thetans aren't up to running a body because they're so messed up. So in OT3 and above, OT4, OT, you know, five, seven, uh, Scientologists believe that they are telepathically contacting these body thetans one at a time and addressing whatever the concern is that, that, you know, or the problem or the issue with that particular body thetan and clearing them, freeing them, right? Like unclustering them so they can go off and, like Hubbard said, you know, go off as a cleared being and get their own body or go admire daisies or whatever they're gonna go do but that's supposed to be freeing up not only the individual who's being audited or you know who's doing the solo auditing not only is it freeing up his attention and ability to operate in life but it's supposed to be freeing that clustered body thetan so he's no longer a body thetan now he's a real thetan and um, and he can go off and live his own independent life again because for you know 75 million years He's been glued to, you know, the the person who's doing the auditing, the Scientologist. And that is uh, a big deal for Scientologists, that they think they're doing this, right? Now, the the beauty of this, I mean, is it's just that it is the most subjective exercise you could possibly engage in. Because, you know, you're sitting in a room by yourself, not saying a word, looking at a knee meter that's, you know, with a needle bouncing around, doing whatever it's doing. And you're sitting here holding cans and writing out what's going on. And you are telepathically communicating to these spirits, right? These thetans. I mean, there's no way to prove that anything is happening at all, right? But this is what they really think they're doing. And and thereby believe that by sitting in a room doing this procedure for hours and hours and hours on end, uh, for years when you get to OT7, Right, I mean, I'm talking to like there are people who are on OT seven doing this every day, four to five times a day, for a decade, contacting you know telepathically their body phantoms and freeing them, and they truly believe that by doing that, they are saving the world, that they are creating a that they that they are generating. Theta, they are generating this this wonderful positive energy force or life force that is going out into the world and is and is doing good things, and they also believe that they are overcoming their own um, tendencies or desires to uh, engage in war or uh, criminality or conflict, because Hubbard said that these clustered BTs are. And this whole Xenu incident that happened you know, 75 million years ago um, is the thing that uh, created the urge and desire within mankind to have war, criminality, and insanity. So this is a big deal in Scientology when people get to this level and they start addressing what they call... The fourth dynamic engram. Fourth dynamic refers to mankind, and engram return, refers to a painful, you know, moment of uh, uh, stress and trauma and pain and unconsciousness. That's a Dianetics term, engram. So, uh, so this fourth dynamic engram that we all share, that all of us on Earth participated in, the Zenu incident, right, is the thing that has uh, that has made this whole sector of the universe, a desert, and uh, very uncivilized, very, you know, backwards, very, you know, made Earth a prison planet, and that sort of thing. So it's a whole, there's a whole, you know, lot of lore and mythology connected with this narrative in Scientology, even though no Scientologist knows anything about it in terms of the specifics or details of it until they get to OT3 right? Other than, other, until they get to OT3, it's just rumors. It's just, oh my God, you're not going to believe how amazing it is, right? People who've done the level will talk to lower level Scientologists and say, man, you got to get to OT3, like no matter what, you got to get there, right? And they're very fervent about it. But they won't tell any details about it because they think that if they do, that they're going to you know, hurt the person that they're, that they're giving the details to if the person hasn't made it to OT3 yet. So, um, so yes, this is absolutely positively, uh, as far as Scientologists are concerned, the most productive use of their time, <laughs> which is, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, it's a shame, you know, that they, that they buy into that. Uh, but that's, that's what happens. Think Peace 2011. Chris, with Hurricane Irma set to barrel through Clearwater, how many Scientologists will be demoted on the OT bridge? Will they feel responsible? Well, by the way, I'm uh, glad you're asking this question because I do want to say to any viewers out there who are in the Florida area, if you're still in Florida with this hurricane getting through and you're watching this, get out of there. Uh, I'm really hoping that, uh, that things are not going to be as bad as the news is projecting that they're going to be for the Floridians and the people in the path of Hurricane Irma. And, uh, you know, I don't do thoughts and prayers really because I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, help offered in, in doing that. But um, but I really do hope that you know you guys are gonna be gonna be okay. Uh, as far as Scientologists go, um, and Hurricane Irma, no, nobody, no OTs are gonna get demoted. That's not really how Scientology works. Um, you don't take people's OT levels away from them as such. I mean, you, you, you know, you could, um, but that isn't something David Miscavige has particularly tried yet uh, too much, right? He's taken people's clear status away, so I can understand where the question comes from, but, um, but no, it doesn't, really, it doesn't really work that way, that, that some, you know, outside external event happened, and therefore, you know, that proves that you're not OT, because Scientologists don't think that way. They don't think with having to prove their OT abilities. What they do is they use chance and coincidence and random occurrences to connect dots that shouldn't connect on how their OT abilities caused this random act of whatever to occur. They'll take credit for it, right? Uh, The classic one being the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening of, of uh, you know, the downfall of communist Russia in the, in the late 1980s the Scientologists took uh, credit for that within the world of Scientology because OT8 had just been released like a year before or something or months before and so now all these OT8s were auditing on OT8 and look at what happened in the world as a result. So Scientology will take uh, credit for positive things that happen but they will not take responsibility for any negative things that happen. Andrea Diamond Almost every ex-Scientologists book slash blog slash podcast's personal story of leaving the Sea Org, staff, and or the church that I've seen has said the reasons they left happened slowly over time rather than one specific eye-opening moment. Kindly share some chronological personal examples, the more the better, that piled up for you and the final moment when you said enough. Okay, well, I've sort of talked about all this before, but I haven't really put it all in a, in a line, I guess, before, so let me, uh, let me see if I can lay some of this out for you. Um, I think that uh, maybe the first time when I started having the idea that something was awry was when I was a staff member in Santa Barbara, and I was just constantly working, 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 and Scientology was not taking off, not moving forward, nothing was happening. Santa Barbara Org was a, was a you know, disaster. And, um, and so that's what actually led me to join the Sea Org, because in, in, in search for an answer to why things were floundering and not going anywhere, instead of looking at it and going, well, you know, I, I knew that there were parts of the organizational policies and the, and the structure that just didn't seem to be working out and didn't seem to be working the way Hubbard said it was supposed to. And I didn't really buy into the whole thing of, well, if we just work harder and everybody gets their stats up, then the place will take off, because I just saw that that wasn't the case but i think um, i think my mistake there was instead of like looking around and going oh well this is all just bullshit instead i thought well you know i'm just not doing enough personally or i sh- or, or not not that i'm not doing enough but that i could i could be doing more from a more central location to help places like santa barbara and other places to you know do better and so i joined the C organization now Once I got into the C organization and saw how crazy it was and how, you know, emergency after emergency after emergency, uh, you know, everything was always like, ah, uh, it started dawning on me that, wow, these guys don't really know what they're doing a whole lot more than the guys at the lower levels do, right? But I was still into the, well, we can, you know, we just need to work it out so that we all do what Hubbard says and we just need to make this... Make this, you know, make it go right. So I worked and worked and worked, but um, but there was a project I went on um, in two thousand and two, I think it was, where I went down and pulled off this really great project, and you know, in a few weeks, recruited a bunch of auditors, and this was in San Diego, and and things really took off down there, and I went back and um, got some validation for what I had done, and I wanted to go do it again in other organizations, and I kind of got the um, you know, the smackdown on that, right? It's like, yeah, no, you're not doing that. And in fact, all the advice I put together on how to pull off such a successful project and what to do, all that got, you know, thrown in the trash can and um, and mantras and, and uh, you know, uh, just silly play the birthday game, you know, is, is, a, is a mantra in Scientology. It's just this like, you know, it, it doesn't mean anything, but people say it as though it's supposed to mean you're, you know, you're doing something that's supposed to really make things uh, happen in a spectacular way, kind of like, you know, well, you just have to have faith, you know, it's like, it doesn't mean anything, it's just, it's just this mantra, it's just this sort of like thing that people say that, that it's cliche, there's the word I was looking for. So, um, so I observed that happen and that was the first moment where I realized, we're way off base here, Like, and, may, and there were plenty of things that happened before that that built up to that, but I think that was the moment where I, it really dawned on me for the first time that I was uh, working for an organization that was absolutely not interested in doing what it said it was interested in doing, right? It was all about you know the stats and the production and making money and getting the orgs booming and all this stuff, and I was work, work, working for that. And then I suddenly hit the wall of realization that oh, we're, all this stuff we're doing is just busy work. It's not, we're not doing all this work so that we will create these big, booming, expansive Scientology organizations. That's not what this is all about. Uh, the whole structure of the organization was not, was not moving in that direction. And I became very disaffected with my job, with what I was doing as a manager and with the organization as a whole. Uh, from that, within a year, about two years of that, I ended up on the RPF um, and I did the whole RPF program thinking that it was just my overts, it was my bad misdeeds, the things I had done according to Scientology dogma that you know when, when you're feeling critical or disaffected or out of sorts with someone or something or the organization it's because of your own misdeeds and crimes. So I did the RPF um, you know it's where I ended up and I and I did it and it took me three years and sort of roto rooted my entire existence and my you know like every part of my entire life was looked over and scoured for wrongdoing and so when I came off the RPF I knew that, Uh, it wasn't because of my overts, you know, that I was still feeling critical about the church and about Scientology. Well, I knew that wasn't it. It wasn't my wrongdoing, right? And so that was another step, right, in that because I saw things that were still totally wrong with the organization and I no longer had to buy into this idea that it was all on me. It was my responsibility, my fault. So that was a step forward. And then finally, um, the, you know, the, uh, more things happened that was just goofy bureaucratic nonsense and politics. And I was kind of, after the RPF, I was really kind of done with a lot of that. You know, people would order me around and be snide and and, and, and vicious to me. And I would just sort of, whatever, dude, you know, like, I, I, I didn't really care anymore about any of that. And so, um, so when people would be like, you know, about, I'd be like, Ran back, you know. Like I, I just talked back. I didn't care, and uh, and it was interesting how that shut a lot of people down <laughs> because they weren't used to that. Because in the culture of the Sea Org, seniors are supposed to get away with being able to yell freely and, 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 and indiscriminately toward their juniors, and give them a hard time and and uh, and berate them uh, severely. And they're not, spe- and the juniors just supposed to take it, you know. And I just was like, yeah, fuck you. And so, you know, don't say that often here on the show. But anyway, I just started like you know whatever, and uh, and they just didn't know what to do with me. You know, they were like, "Ah." because I could produce things. I was getting people back on the bridge. I was doing the work that was expected and asked of me to do. So it's not like anybody was unhappy with my work. It's just from time to time you'd get these people who decided that you need to be yelled at. I wasn't into being yelled at, so. Um, so that kind of changed the game a little bit. And then finally, the day that I realized that, um, that I was, uh, this was in uh, 2011 uh, in Twin Cities, right, in Minnesota. And I was on the Ideal Org project there. I opened the place up and was working on getting people back and helping the staff out to, to expand the place. And I was walking down the hall thinking about doing some recovery work, about getting some people back into the church. Who had, who had decided to leave. And I was planning out what I was going to say to this particular person. And I realized you know, that, that a lot of what I was, it kind of just dawned on me that a lot of what I was planning on saying to this person to get them back in were just half-truths and untruths, right? Oh, well, we're going to do this for you and do that for you and it's really not that way anymore. And then I started thinking, it kind of got me thinking about all the lies that you have to tell in order to recruit somebody into Scientology and all the little innuendos and and half-truths and exaggerations that you have to tell somebody to get them to come back in, right? And I just thought, wow, I'm doing so much of this. I'm lying to people. This is not... I don't want to do that. And I I blew off the recovery. You know, I just, no, I'm not going to do that. And I just thought, you know, this is just not... What I ever signed up for. I did not want to be doing this. And I had just before that, I had also seen that we were focused exclusively on making money. Uh, for the IAS, we had opened up this 90,000 square foot building in Twin Cities. And I said, Why aren't we out there getting books sold? Why aren't we bringing new people in? Why aren't we like trying to flood this building with new people? There's lots of things we could do. We could hold seminars, workshops, events. We could do promo. We could do, there's a lot of things we could do to try to attract people in here. And the answer I got back from the project in charge was, uh, you know, there in Twin Cities was, Yeah, well, those aren't our orders, so we're not going to be doing those things. And I was like, what the hell are we doing here? You know, I thought we were here to get Scientology going, right? Again, like I'd I'd realized 10 years before, right? That no, that's not what we're doing. We're here to make money. And every month, right? It was all about uh, uh, holding a fundraising event and making lots of money from from the local parishioners. And again, I just thought, man, this is just not, this is not what Hubbard said to do. This isn't what policy says to do. This is all Miscavige's thing. And I was like, screw this. This is just not now, you know. So all those things, and plenty of other things too, but those are milestones along the road, led me to the, realization, the, the the decision that it was time for me to leave the Sea Org. I was not happy with my life. I was 42 years old at the time, and I was like, you know, or I was coming up on my 42nd birthday. My, and I'm looking, looking at it going, you know, my life's half over. I'm not moving up the bridge, I'm not a happy Scientologist, I'm doing a good job everywhere I go, but this isn't making me happy, and, uh, and so it's time for me to leave the Sea Org and, and, and look at doing something better with my life. And, and so that's when I left, and then of course I went down the internet rabbit hole, and here I am talking to you guys now. So there you go. A.L. A.L. How do you reconcile your laid-back and accepting attitude towards people whose ideologies and scriptures tell them that homosexuals are evil and instill a sense of superiority over sinners or out-ethics, normal people? This is specifically in response to your comments that people's religions should be respected. I know it's an old conundrum, but it does seem to become more and more difficult the more scientifically one approaches a subject. Yeah, I know, it's a tough one. I disagree with a lot of people's beliefs. What I don't disagree with is their right to have them. And, um, and this is just the, this is just so tough um, because of course, immediately out come all the extremist beliefs. And well, do you think that people should be Nazis then? Well, do you think that people should, you know, have the right to believe in you know, that climate change isn't a real thing or you know, Trump or this or that or whatever the extremist thing is? And I go, look, I don't have to agree with any of your beliefs or ideas or opinions or attitudes. In fact, I, I, there's lots of them that I don't. And why should I? Right? I have my own opinions, and my own opinions are not necessarily going to be agreed with by everybody. So, excuse me. So, so the way I approach it is: okay, well, we're all not going to agree on anything. There is nothing that everyone agrees on. I swear to God, I could say that we all have to breathe to live and somebody would have something to say about it. Because I can sit here and say that the earth is round and somebody's gonna have something to say about it, right? I can say, hey, look at these hurricanes, they're you know an indicator of global climate change and somebody's gonna have something to say about it, right? So there, there isn't anything that I can open my mouth about that somebody's not gonna have something to say about. So I respect that somebody will have something to say about it, I respect that they're th- they're, the, what they're going to think, they have the right to think. Um, now, whether their view is right or not, it's, you know, it's correct or not, is a whole different thing. And I'm willing to go to the mat with people over their beliefs if they're willing to have a rational conversation about it. Unfortunately, with some of these beliefs, you get people who just immediately open with the ad hominem, you know, you're this, you're that, you're an idiot, you're a blah, blah, blah. And you just go, I can't even talk to you right? So I I guess, um, you know, so I can't even, you know, do the debate, right? Which makes it rough. And I'm sure I come across that way on some issues too. So I'm not trying to paint myself as lily white here. I'm I'm human just like everybody else. Um, What I'm trying to do with this channel and what I'm trying to do with the things that I communicate to you folks are, um, I'm I'm trying to preach tolerance of of belief, tolerance, uh, you know, understanding because those things are going to exist whether you want them to or not. Right? People are going to think thoughts whether you want them to or not. People are going to believe what they're going to believe whether you want them to or not. So, the way I see it is that by having a tolerant attitude and by expressing that it's okay for, you know, you to express your beliefs and express what you, you know, truly feel, you know, deeply convicted of, um, well, you know, what your convictions are, I then have a chance to have a conversation with you about it. And I have a chance to change your mind if I disagree with whatever your stated belief or idea, or, you know, is. If I shut the whole thing down with, you're an idiot you're, you know, a monster, you're evil, you're this, you're that, and I just throw some label on you and go, well, pfft, right, we're done, I'm, I'm done talking to you and there's no conversation possible, I lose the opportunity to change your mind, and I think that's probably the most fundamental reason why I am trying to put across the idea that it's good to be tolerant towards other people's beliefs and ideas because then they'll be willing to communicate to you about them and then you'll have a shot at changing their mind. And this means you guys have a shot at changing my mind about things too, right? I'm okay with that. It's just all that, you know, name calling and labeling and stuff that I send, I kinda have a bit of a hard time with and in discourse and, you know, in talking. It's also really, really hard on social media to engage in substan- substantive or meaningful debate because it's uh, you don't even know who you're talking to, right? And you don't know where they're coming from, it's hard to read nuance in text messages and comment sections. But you know, but I give it a go from time to time uh, with you guys, and I and I appreciate your efforts to uh, you know to change my mind as long as you don't insult me in the process. And I try try to not insult you guys too, right? And if I ever do come across as insulting, it's it truly isn't on purpose, right? It really isn't, and I hope um, I hope that comes across in in my videos and stuff, although I know that um, some people have such passionate ideas about their beliefs that you know, if you mention anything even slightly critical of uh, some people's deeply held beliefs, they will immediately take it as an attack no matter what words you use. Um, and I've certainly run across that in the political spectrum too. So anyway, uh, bottom line is um, I will not necessarily agree with your beliefs, but I will die for your right to have those beliefs. And, um, and I think that that is an attitude of respect toward other people, not their beliefs. I don't respect people's beliefs. I respect them when they earn that respect. Okay? So, um, so that's kind of, I guess, maybe how I could put all that. John Jones. When you were a fan of Alex Jones, what was the most ridiculous conspiracy theory of his that you actually believed? If you can't decide because they're all equally ridiculous, then pick one at random. Okay, this, this, I just I just picked this question to answer because I thought it might be kind of fun to talk about how I used to be down the conspiracy rabbit hole too. So, and when I say, when I talk about that, I mean, I was deep down that hole. Uh, To the point where I was, you know, briefing and lecturing other people about how they needed to get in on my conspiracy theories, right? And listen to Alex Jones and David Icke and and these guys because they really had an inside line on what was going on. Uh, So I think the most ridiculous stuff that I fell into believing, and in fact some of the last stuff I fell into believing that actually got me to the point where I started questioning some of those beliefs, was when... um, Alex Jones was talking about FEMA camps. There's a there's a DVD called Endgame uh, about Obama and the evils of the White House and Obama himself, and how FEMA was going to set up these concentration camps all over the United States, which were supposed to be safe zone camps that FEMA was setting up, by, or or something. Turns out, uh, one of the videos that proposed to show these coffins that the FEMA camps were supposedly you know, storing to, to kill everybody who showed up at these concentration camps or wipe out a whole bunch of people, at least, the, the idea was that, um, that there was going to be a depopulation uh, effort made, right, to kill a whole bunch of people and uh, wipe out a whole bunch of the planet and keep and keep workforces concentrated in super cities, these mega cities are gra- scattered around the United States connected by these super highways. And the FEMA camps were going to be these concentration and extermination camps that were going to get rid of a whole bunch of people. And they were going to do it by injecting them with uh, vaccines that were supposed to, you know, the people would take the vaccines because they thought that they were going to be Saving them, you know, from disease, but in fact, the government had put out, or these big bad guys, right? And I say the government, the establishment, the conspiracy, whatever, was going to release this toxic plague, right, all across the U.S. And the uh, and the vaccine was supposed to save you um but the vaccine was either going to make you sick and give you this super vaccine or super flu killer thing or it wasn't going to protect you from it and so uh so all these people were were supposed to die right now this is all like over 10 years ago that all this went down so i'm probably messing up some of the details but Uh, But definitely concentration camps, FEMA camps, right, was part of the picture. It was a government-sponsored, state-run extermination system that was supposed to happen. And part of this was also going to involve using troops from foreign countries on American soil to enforce this, right? Canadian troops and Mexican troops were going to come in to the country under the guise of war games or mutual exercises with the U.S., and then they were going to be the ones who were going to be killing U.S. citizens, not American soldiers, right? So this was somehow morally how this was all going to work. And, you know, the whole thing is absolutely ludicrous, but Alex Jones did say these things, I, you know, I might be missing up on some of the minutiae details of this, but the big picture that I'm telling you right now was absolutely put forward in his voice, with his money, making these DVDs, promoting this idea. And he took it to the extreme, uh, and this is when I first woke up to it, right, was on air. He was telling people, Alex Jones, that um, to, to not be vaccinated. Right, that there was a flu going around. There was some kind of uh, flu or something going around in the U.S. There was some kind of a disease going around. This was, uh, I think, two thousand nine or ten, right, somewhere around there. And uh, and this flu was going around, or this this disease was going around in the U.S. And Alex Jones was on air saying, "Don't get vaccinated for this." right don't vaccinate your kids don't trust the government do not do it and i went what you know cuz i i've been vaccinated my whole life and my mom was a nurse and I very strongly believe in the theory of vaccination and the practicality of it and the reasons for it. So, um, and I, you know, we can talk about specifics of, of individual vaccines that may or may not have been properly safety tested and all this kind of stuff. And there's there's a whole conversation to have about, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers and all that. I am not an anti-vaxxer, but, um, but the, the overall idea of having vaccinations of, you know making sure kids and adults get vaccinated, this is not something I mess around with. I very strongly support that, and uh, and so the idea that you know, preaching to people to not get vaccinated for a disease that was you know going around in the U.S. was absolutely unacceptable to me, and that was um, that was one of the things that got me questioning what's up with this guy, and then. Uh, you know, just looking into the 9-11 information, right, the 9-11 truth or stuff with Alex Jones was absolutely pushing. Um, I started debunking all that, right, through all the debunk articles that have been done. And that was the beginning of the end for me on all conspiracy, uh, global conspiracy theories, right? People get all over me about, well, what are you saying? Conspiracies don't exist at all, which is not what I said, right? Not what I meant at all. Um, I have have tried to take care to say global conspiracy theories, meaning the Illuminati, you know, Freemasons, just the, the bullshit that goes around the internet on this stuff is ridiculous. It's just, it's absolutely ludicrous because if these guys truly believe that, you know, they've somehow secretly got a line into a global conspiracy that is consuming millions, billions of dollars, millions of people's lives... And, is, uh, and we're talking about the actual takeover of nations and the world. And they've somehow figured this out with some YouTube videos. Uh, like, really? So at, at, in one light, the global conspirators are these brilliant madmen. And on the other hand, they're so stupid that people can you know, find out about them on YouTube. Like, come on, guys. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. It's, it's just, this isn't how the real world works which is not to say that conspiracies don't happen every single day. There's all kinds of conspiracies, they go on all the time, and they almost always get busted uh, when they're engaged in illegal activities and, uh, and the perpetrators get found out about because human beings are horrible at keeping secrets. I mean, we're awful at it, right? We can't keep a secret about anything. So, uh, so people have to talk, and once they start talking, man, It's game over. So, anyway, that's, you know, just a little bit more about conspiracies, so have fun with that. Okay, the lightning strikes and it is time for flash answers. Barbara Ann, do you know if the Church of Scientology has made their way to Texas to touch assist yet? Yeah, there are volunteer ministers in Texas uh, you know, doing the Scientology thing. I think there's like 50 of them or something. I mean, you know, so much for the you know, largest global force for uh, you know, hurricane survival or disaster relief. As usual, Scientology's claims are shown to be totally bogus nonsense. But that's not to say that the those 50 folks who went down there are doing nothing of any good, because I'm sure they are and uh and I you know and I was and I always want to be clear to differentiate that that individual Scientologists who go into these disaster relief zones really do mean well, and they really are trying, and uh you know they're they're not trained professionals for the most part. they fumble bumble around and they try to make themselves out to be these amazing people that they're not, but their intentions are good, and I'm not going to knock you know the work that they do to pass out supplies, help with logistics try to do whatever disaster relief assistance they can, more power to them, right? They're doing more than I am when it comes to going to a disaster relief site and giving of their time and and money to do that, right? Um, Now, counterpoint that with how the Church of Scientology organizationally positions their work, takes advantage of them to do that work without giving them any financial assistance to do it and then exaggerates the work that they've done to make it seem like they were the one and only people who mattered at the site. That's where I have a problem. So, just to make it clear about that. Malvachi P. Didn't I read somewhere that they had their church status in the IRS pulled once before? This is a commonly misunderstood point, so, um, no. The Church of Scientology has never had its status as a church or as a religion taken away from them what they had taken away from them was their tax exempt 501c3 status that is a status that is given by the IRS to an organization as an it it assigns it to be a nonprofit religious entity and that's for tax purposes that is not for court purposes or religious status purposes the IRS does not rule one way or the other as to whether the religiosity of a group is valid or not. It simply says whether or not the group is tax-exempt or not based on their very, very loose 501c3 guidelines. So the religiosity question and the tax-exempt question are two different things. This is very, very misunderstood out there and I used to have the same misunderstanding until I wrote about it in my book. So that's uh, how that works. Nikolai Jensen. Hey Chris, I live in Denmark and recently Scientology opened up their new ideal org in Copenhagen. I have also been seeing ads at bus stops around the country for Scientology, something I have never seen before. I know that the church uses Denmark as their European headquarters. Do you have any knowledge of how big Scientology is in Denmark or in other parts of Scandinavia? Tiny. Like, Like At most, ever, a few thousand people who would count themselves as Scientologists in the entire European region, right? Uh, We're not talking about a ton of people. So, um, I mean, you know, thousands at this point who are active members and maybe a few tens of thousands who were ever, in all the years that Scientology has been around, uh, active as Scientologists in Europe. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. Please leave any questions, comments, feedback, whether it's good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section below, and I will see them. I will add your questions to my queue, and I hope to uh, see you guys joining up on my Patreon uh, site, because that is what keeps this channel going and keeps me going to be able to do the research and writing and work that I do to bring you guys these videos. Thank you very much for your support, and Uh, for your questions and for your, um, you know, just wonderful viewership. And uh, go ahead and share this around on the internet, please. Thanks a lot, and bye-bye.